Well, good morning. Morning. I hope you all had a, a pretty good week. That brings us in. I know it was a beautiful weekend. That's a great way to start ending off August for sure. Uh, we had a pretty busy weekend or week around the church here with uh, activities getting ready for the fall, some of which we're sharing with you on our announcements here, but also we had the Taylor graduation service happening here yesterday and had a funeral here and lots of other activities. So it's starting to, starting to definitely get a little busier around here. I did manage to get ahead of things a little bit and I was able to have a bit of a typical Saturday morning in some ways. You see, Saturday morning for me usually involves me getting up ahead of Nadine. It's kind of her sleep-in day. And so I sneak downstairs and I make myself a cup of tea and then I go to my office and I start working on editing kind of the final edit of my sermon where I usually edit it for length. Yes, there is a longer version than, than you experience on Sunday. And at that time as well, I start to make my slides. And yesterday, I was able to get everything done so that Saturday morning, I could have my tea and sit in my office and start making my edits and my slides. And when you know it, I moved my arm and I knocked over my tea, freshly brewed, boiling hot tea, all over my computer, all over my keyboard, and all the way down my arm. I just have a small blister. It's not too bad. <laughs> and so as this, as this spilled all over the place and down onto my pants, I stood up and I said, nothing inappropriate. <laughs> I said, nothing inappropriate. But I said something along the lines of, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was along the lines of, good grief, <laughs> of all the things. You ever had moments like that where you've said that maybe those words even or something similar to that? This expression of a mixture of surprise, alarm, dismay, with a much more than less than desirable event that just took place in your life. Perhaps an event in your life along the lines of when you're trying to kick a football for the hundredth time, but the holder just keeps moving it out of the way. Or if you're trying to fly a kite with your kids or your grandkids, but that kite-eating tree just keeps getting the best of you. Have you ever had a dog that refused to sleep in his doghouse and would always sleep on top of his doghouse? Or you're, you're pitching in that big baseball game and you throw the strike and then the batter hits it right back at you to the point where it knocks you literally out of your socks, shoes, and shorts. You buy a Christmas tree and your friends do nothing but mock you and laugh at you. Or, or, or perhaps you were in school and you were, you were just never able to quite catch a break with that little redheaded girl that you've been crushing on for the last many, many years. <laughs> of course, you probably know that I'm talking about Charlie Brown, Right? Charlie Brown, old Charlie Brown, who, oh, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. I'm glad you could be with us, old blockhead. You old lovable loser in the zigzag shirt from the 1950s comment, in case there's a generation gap happening here. <laughs> welcome. I'm glad you could be with us today. This is great. Charlie Brown, it seems like nothing ever goes right for you, that you're constantly bummed out. And, and your catchphrase, I think we're all aware of, which is, good grief. You should have that across your shirt. Charlie Brown, did you know that that's a rather odd phrase, actually? It's actually kind of an oxymoron, which means it's a phrase. No, no, I'm not calling you a moron. No, an oxymoron. It's a, it's a phrase where it has words that seem contradictory or seem to negate each other. Right. Examples like jumbo shrimp, right? An oxymoron or, or freezer burn, right? What's that? Yes, yes, Microsoft Works would also be an oxymoron. Can you think of any others? Well, we try not to find, yes, government intelligence, yes. That is also 
but that's as political as we're going to get today. Okay. All right. You know, Charlie Brown, thanks for being with us today. You realize that since 1952, you've been saying that phrase. Do you remember the first time you said it? It was right. It was a comic strip. Lucy came into the room, and you thought she said, do you want a big hug? But yeah, she said, do you want a big bug? And then she threw it on you. And what did you say? Good grief, right? I, yes, yes, I've read that one. Absolutely. Well, did you know also, um, actually, we should probably say goodbye to you because we're going to talk about you for a second here. So thanks for being with us today because we're going to talk about how Charles Schultz, your creator, actually decided that should be your catchphrase. And he decided that it was also going to be a defining part of who Charlie Brown was. And here's what he said. He said, Charlie Brown must be the one who suffers because he is a caricature of the average person. Most of us are much more acquainted with losing than with winning. I don't know how that sits with you. I, I find that rather pessimistic. Don't you as well? And, and I kind of feel bad for old Blockhead when I read that because what that means is that his creator designed it so that Charlie Brown will never win. But thank God that we have a creator who has a slightly different perspective. Even though it may not feel like it in certain seasons of life, we have a creator who has a different perspective. That while sometimes the events of our lives may string together in a series of seeming misadventures, we do not need to resign ourselves to defeat or to be defined by defeat. Because we have every reason because of God and his gift of Jesus Christ to identify ourselves as victors as victors who can actually understand what it means to say the phrase, good grief. I've walked through many, many tough seasons with people in the years of being a pastor. And as I was thinking about this phrase, good grief, and, and what it means and how we're going to reflect upon that today, there's one man in particular who came to mind for me. It's a guy by the name of Al. I met Al a number of years back, and when I first met him, he had just finished, uh, he, or he had just had a workplace accident that caused him to lose an arm. Very serious accident. And I met him during the end of his recovery time for that. And as he's recovering, as it, it press, if you've known somebody who has had a serious accident like that, they do learn to, to live very, very high-functioning lives. It, it takes a lot of practice and healing and, and re kind of learning how to do certain daily like activities, but, but he was at the end of that, and he was starting to function very well again, and he was starting to go back to work. He tried going back to work, but he had an industrial job, and, and the reality was it just, it just wasn't going to happen. It was, it was a job that required a guy to have two arms, and so he lost his job. Now, he had WCB to pay part of the money, but it wasn't enough. He had lived in a very well-paying job and lifestyle for quite a while. That Even though he had some money coming in, it wasn't enough to, to kind of make things still run smoothly. And so money got tight. And as money got tight, he started to have problems with the bank and problems with the bank, problems with the mortgage, and eventually the bank took his house. So as he lost his arm, he lost his job, he lost his house, money's getting tight. You can imagine things start to get a little tense around the house, and without going into many details, eventually he lost his wife, as she left him. That added to the financial problems, and, and as he continued down that path, he eventually lost his truck as well. And I know, it sounds like a walking, living country music song. It does. But this really did happen. He did lose his job. He lost his house. He lost his wife. He lost his truck. He probably lost his dog in there somewhere. He didn't share that part with me, but I'm sure that fit, it fit the song. But he kept coming to church. 
He kept going to his men's Bible study. He, he kept stopping in regularly throughout the week to just talk with me, encourage me, to, to, to pray with me. Until one day he stops in and he tells me he has cancer. And I'm like, man, it just doesn't stop. But he had this peacefulness about him as he told me he had cancer. And he said, Mark, I'd, it's okay. I'm not going to fight it. He said, I've really got nothing left to live for. I just want to be with Jesus. And as a pastor, like, like, how do you respond to that? On one hand, you, you want to affirm, yes, yes, Jesus at the center of everything. On the other hand, you want to be like, well, maybe, you know, maybe there's more to live for. I, I just didn't know how to respond to that. Just one trial after the other. How do you encourage a person? How do you share a verse? How do you share something from Scripture for that moment? And, and for a lot of time, I was without an answer to it. I went to visit him in the hospital one day. He was in there to have some tests done to see just how far the cancer had advanced. And I walked into the room just as they're about to take him away for, uh, for the procedure to, to do the test. And I said, oh, Al, I'll come back and see you tomorrow. I'm sorry I showed up now. You got to go. Yeah, I'll come back and see you tomorrow. But before I go, let me share these words with you. And I share with him Romans 8, 28. Al, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purposes. And then he died that night. And I felt like a really bad pastor. <laughs> like I quoted this verse in his final hours. Al, moments before you die, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Hours before he dies. And this, quote, this verse is often misquoted. It's often extended to, to provide comfort and, and reassurance amidst the Charlie Brown moments of life and even more serious things that happen to us. And, and when it's misquoted, it's often done so as an attempt to kind of gloss over the problems. It's it's attempt to sort of help a person move from grief to good. I, I know there's grief and chaos, but let's just, let's just gloss over that and get to the good is, is sometimes how it's shared, which would be inappropriate in misquoting it. But you know, in hindsight... In Al's case, I think I accidentally quoted the verse properly. I want to explain to you today why. Because when we quote this verse properly, it actually helps us to understand why we can look at the phrase and understand what it means to actually experience good grief. Good grief. What's so good about grief? It's a fair question. And it's one that I think this verse can help put into perspective for us. So, maybe a bit of a tough message for some people, because we're going to talk about grief, and some people are in the midst of grief. But I hope it is an important one, and one that will, that will encourage you on some level, but also move you forward in a way that is good for your soul and for those around you. As we've done each week as we go through this series, Miss Coda, we begin in the exact same spot. We begin by placing the verse that we're talking about in context. And that's not just important to do when we're preaching. Even in your own times of Bible study and Bible reading at home, it's really important to put the verses in context. They're really, the subtitle for this message could be reduced down to misquoted, context is king, because they always got to look at the context. So, Romans chapter 8. It begins and it ends with a declaration that of a Christian's absolute security before God. You see, in verse 1, 
Paul here talks about in verse 1. He says, there is no condemnation for those no condemnation before God for those who are in Christ Jesus. And at the end of chapter 8, he says nothing in heaven and nothing on earth can separate us from God's love for us in Jesus Christ. These promises kind of bookend the chapter. They provide like this, this warm, secure feeling for what comes in the middle. It's just kind of like snug like a bug in a rug in the middle of these two promises we have there. But what comes in the middle? There's a discourse about how we and all of creation wait with groaning for God to fulfill his great plan. It's a sobering reality that that many people, even many religions, many philosophies, try to cancel that middle part from their promises and and from people's lives. But this is a sobering reality because you can't cancel it. People try to through avoiding hardships by by minimizing them by by trying to explain them away explain away anything that might be uncomfortable sometimes it's tried to to be glossed over by pursuing things like wealth and, and popularity and power or or to indulge in substances that that will serve to mask the pain for a period of time but it really doesn't deal with it you may not i wasn't aware of this until just very recently but apparently in west africa there is a cranberry-like fruit that's called a miracle fruit. Anyone ever heard of this before? Okay. It's called a miracle fruit. And it's called that because it includes something, a, 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 a molecule referred to as miraculin. It, it's a real thing. I might, this is 100% true story. It's called miraculin. And they named it that because when you eat this berry, it binds the taste buds of the tongue and it makes everything taste sweet. Now, Let's think about it for a second. Or let's, let's actually start by playing a little game here. Remember that game, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Okay, we'll play our version here at West Meadows. So, so who can think of, there's, there's five things the tongue can taste. What, what five things does the tongue taste? You can just call them out. Bitter. Sweet. Sour. Salty. Umami. I knew someone was going to get umami. Everyone heard of umami before? Also known as savory. Or Chinese food, right? A lot of MSG, things like that. Yeah. So, savory umami. So that's what our tongue can taste. But if you have this miracle fruit, everything, it binds the taste buds and everything tastes sweet. Is that a good thing? If you're trying to choke down some, some a mom's liver that <laughs> she cooked. Some people like liver and onions, right? Pop a few, a few beans in there. Hey, it tastes sweet. If you don't want to eat your vegetables, give these to your kids first. Leave their vegetables, right? It sounds like it might be a good thing. But here's the problem. The reason the tongue has all these different tastes is is not just for enjoyment of flavor. It also seems to be a a very useful safety uh, system within our body. You see, the tongue helps us to avoid ingesting harmful things. Things that tend to be sour also tend to be toxic. Things that tend to be not ripe or poisonous tend to have a bitter taste to them. And so the tongue actually can help us to avoid ingesting harmful substances into our bodies that this fruit would actually mask. And here's the thing, is is the effects of the fruit wear off after about an hour. And then you're left with the effects of this gone, plus at the same time, all the flavor of life returns, plus the side effects of whatever you ingested during that moment. I think the illustration is this, is that we we can have a life where it is a quest for happiness, a quest for a problem-free existence, a God who will make it all better all the time and nothing bad ever happens. I need to find the secret to life where I can just be content 
all the time. Everything's all sweet. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. I think that's why Paul sandwiched these words between two promises. Because he creates a three-step message here. The first step says there is hope in Jesus Christ. There is hope in Jesus Christ amidst the pain of life that we will endure. But God loves you and nothing can ever change that. There's hope in Christ amidst the pain of life. God loves you and nothing will ever change that. Which leads us to this verse found in the middle part of Romans 8, 28 that says, We know all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. Now, in order to properly accept the promise of this verse and to understand it, it requires us to also accept that there are going to be some seasons of life that are hard, that there are going to be painful moments in this life, but still holding fast to the belief that even when life blows up, there is a God who is all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, loves you, and is working towards good for you. We agree with that? Now here's the thing. Most translations will have it this way. If you, if you happen to have your Bibles open, paper Bibles are on your phones, you'll probably see this version more often than not. But see, this version says all things work together for good, but I think this actually leads to influencing how we misapply it at times. You see, when we read it this way, sometimes a pastor will, or, or a book will unpack it and they will say something along the lines of, well, life is like a baker. There's many ingredients that they need to put into the recipe and not all of them taste very good. For example, if I offered you a stick of butter, anyone here eat just a stick of butter? Probably not. If I offered you a spoonful of cornstarch, you're just going to... Take that spoonful of cornstarch, probably not. How about a cup of flour? Probably couldn't get it down, too dry. What if I offered you a raw egg? Well, Rocky, he used to eat raw eggs, right? But barring that, a raw egg, would you eat a raw egg? No, not individually. But what if I mix that all together and I offered you the cookie that I just made? Then you would take it. And so sometimes that's how this verse is presented, where, where if we mix it all together... I can then offer you the cookie that I just made, and everything's going to be good and happy. Likewise, not all situations and circumstances in life are pleasant, but if you mix in enough good with it, all of a sudden, good comes out the other end. Here's the danger that I see in this. I think this leads people to try to connect and find dots in order to simply make a cookie out of all the events of their lives. I have all these events. I've got to connect them somehow because I need to get to the cookie. And, it, and it's basically a way of trying to connect them where our desire to immediately turn lemons to lemonade. And it comes from a definition of good work together that often is narrow, temporal, and materialistic. Meaning it's a definition of good that is based upon how we see things. I'm sorry to hear that you lost your job. I'm sure you'll get a better one. Why? Because all things work together for good. Try not to be too upset your fiancé just dumped you. God must have an even better life partner around the corner for you. I'm not sure that's helpful. That's how we misquote sometimes this particular verse. 
And that's part of the problem. You see, some ingredients in life are just bitter. Some ingredients of life do not fit into any recipe in that sense. And if we try to add the miraculine in, it just covers it up for a period of time. It just glosses over for a period of time. It, it just removes us from it for a period of time, but it doesn't actually deal with it. Think of example of Afghanistan right now. So much turmoil. So much loss of life and broken promises and regression of the rights of people, especially the rights and freedoms of women. I'm not aware of any recipe that you can add, any ingredients you can add to that situation that just makes a cookie pop out the other side. And that's why myself and and many other theologians actually prefer the NIV version of this verse. If you have the NIV version with you, which is true to the grammar, but also true, to I believe, to the intent, and it reads like this. It says, we know that in all things God works. That in all things, God works for good. It's subtle, but it's an important difference. You see, this version says that nothing is beyond God's awareness. That nothing is beyond his ability to work in the midst of a trial. A job loss, a broken heart, even a war-torn region of the world is not beyond his awareness or beyond his ability to work in the midst of the trial. He can and he does work in all things for good without the need to mask over the bitterness of it. The bitterness does not prevent God from working good in the midst of it. But this requires us to understand good from God's perspective. I think Paul himself, who wrote these words, is his own testimony helps us to understand what this looks like from God's perspective. Because I imagine as he was writing Romans 8, he could not escape the reality of his own life, that his own story was playing through his mind. As he looked back and was anticipating what still lied ahead for him in his ministry, and he wrote this down to us in, in the book of, of 2 Corinthians, where he says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles. I've been in danger in cities. I've been in danger in countries. It almost feels Dr. Seussish, doesn't it? I've been in danger in countries, in danger at the sea, in danger from the false believers. I have labored and I have toiled and I have gone without sleep. I have known hunger. I have known thirst. I have gone without food. I have been cold and I have been naked. What's good about that? How was this good grief? He may be wondering in his own mind. I can tell you what he didn't say. He didn't say, shipwrecked. God surely has a better boat for me right around the corner. Lost in the open sea? Well, there's a nice beach vacation waiting for you just off the horizon. No food? You've been hungry? Well, you're looking good. You dropped a few pounds. <laughs> I guarantee you that is not the message that he was seeing in this. No. Paul has God's perspective on these things. Paul has God's perspective on how God works in all things for good. Why? Because he is focused upon the spiritual over the material. And that's of God's highest concern. When we think about what is good from God's perspective, it is the spiritual over the material. That is his highest concern for the lives of all people. He's also focused upon the eternal over the temporal. And this is a hard one, but that means that good may not involve this life, but the life to come. 
But that's where God's primary focus is. And what Paul endured, it hurt him. It left literal scars upon his body. Those lashes that he took, being in danger from friend and foe, it left scars and it discouraged him. And there were moments when he and around, those around him would have said, well, how much more could you possibly take? But Paul answers that question in 2 Corinthians as well, where he says this. He says, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs all of these momentary troubles. He's saying here that nothing can compete. Nothing can compare to the glory of the life that is yet to come with Jesus. What Paul was enduring was not meaningless. It was preparing him for glory. What Paul was doing was not meaningless because while he was going through these trials, he was also inviting other people to come and experience new life with Jesus in this life and in the life to come. Now this doesn't mean that the Christian life is primarily defined by loss or that it's primarily defined by suffering and trials. That's not the message that we get from this. Actually, research in our own testimonies probably completely contradict that. Research has shown, there's, there's a, a research done recently by, by Pew Research Association who, who found that Christians are, are statistically much happier, healthier, and engaged in their communities than the non-religious. And active Christians, not just people who are nominal Christians, they experience that too, but active Christians exponentially even more happy, even more charitable. So it's not right to get into the ditch on the other side of the road that says, well, the Christian life is simply just, just trials and challenges. That's not true either. You see, God loves to pour out gifts upon his children. He loves to pour out gifts upon his children, but not at the expense of their future glory. Does that make sense? But not at the expense of their future glory. And that's what's meant by this last phrase we find in in Romans 8, 28, where it says, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Remember, good from God's perspective focuses primarily upon the spiritual and the eternal. That does not preclude the temporal and the material, but those are second, which also helps us to also understand what is meant by his purposes. See, if we were to keep reading through Romans 8 beyond this verse in 28, we get to some areas that are hotly debated by theologians. And so we're not going to jump into that because that would be a whole part two maybe for another day. But here's what I can tell you the theologians all agree upon for the verses that follow this. The verses that follow talk about what these purposes are. And the purposes are this. God knows who his children are. He loves them and he has a plan for them now and for all of eternity. And through the events of our lives, the good ones and the hard ones, he uses them to shape his children into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So that one day, his great plan may be fulfilled and we can all be welcomed into glory. See, there are some promises in scripture that are for all people. God loves you. God knows you. God sent his son to pay the price for your sins so that you could be in relationship with you. There are some promises like that that are for all people. And I believe God works in the lives of all people. Even when they deny him, he's still working their lives to to bring good in their lives as an act of love to draw them closer towards him. 
because the greatest good they could experience is to have a relationship with him. However, this particular promise in Romans 8, 28 is only for those who have believed and have received for some of the reasons I've just shared with you. You see, it's said in this own verse that it is for those who love God and therefore are part of his purposes, working towards his purposes. It's for those who have placed their trust in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and therefore are children of God. It's for those who strive to be like Jesus because ultimately the purpose and the plan, the great plan, is to shape us and mold us into the image of Jesus. And you see, for those who don't count them as being part of that promise, those who perhaps have denied the reality of God, who have not accepted Jesus into their lives, things may work out sometimes in this life. But the hard reality is that things will not work out for their better when they die and stand before Christ without him in their lives. To help us understand this, wherever you may find yourself in that question, in that situation, to help us understand this, I think one of the best illustrations I've come across was offered by C.S. Lewis. And he refers to this, and he describes this, how God uses adversity to either draw us towards himself so that we can experience new life and we can find ourselves in this promise, or how God works through our adversity to shape us and mold us towards his purposes. He, he, he describes that and he likens it to God walking a dog. If you've ever gone on a walk with a dog, <laughs> they tend to be on the leash and, and sometimes the the dog and you are walking hand in hand and it's, it's perfectly fine. But then all of a sudden, it, sometimes it tries to run forward a little bit and gets itself wrapped around a pole. Well, in that moment, the natural tendency of the dog is to try to run forward more. But that only tightens the leash. It only tightens the situation. But we have to keep in mind that both the owner and the dog have the same goal in mind. The same end is in mind. Forward motion with as minimal tension as possible to arrive at the destination. But here's the thing. Sometimes the owner will walk the dog through areas that are full of obstacles. But sometimes the dog also wanders off the path into its own obstacles. Either way, 100% of the time, the owner understands the situation better than the dog does. The owner knows how to untangle that. The owner knows how to get beyond that, how to move forward and to achieve the goal. And quite often it requires the owner to pull in the opposite direction of where the dog wants to go. You see, in this way, God works through adversity for the good of all people. For those who love him, to help shape them into the image of Christ. Which is why when I think back to my friend Al, I think that I may have used this verse properly in his situation. Because through the midst of all of the trials that he went through, he never lost his faith. It actually pulled him closer and deeper into a relationship with Christ. Throughout all of the challenges he incurred, throughout the cancer diagnosis, and ultimately his death, his journey towards that led him into a deeper dependence and trust in God, who welcomed him into eternity, which was the fulfillment of the plan in Al's life and in the plan for all who count themselves to be children of God. But God also works through these things to shape us in the image of Christ for those who deny him. Those who don't know him. I think he uses these situations as a way to call them to come towards him closer. To experience his goodness, his power, his movement in their life. To experience his grace, truth, and love. So that they too can become children of God. 
and experience new life through Jesus in this life and in the life to come. So what's so good about grief? Well, essentially, it begins with understanding that the promise starts with the fact that there is nothing in this life that is not under the control of God. There is nothing in this life that is not under the awareness and the direct control of our loving Heavenly Father. There will be seasons of hardship. There will be seasons where we have to watch others go through hardship. But we can believe that God sovereignly works through all of these to bring about good. Not always good as we understand it. Not always good in a way that we will enjoy it. But as children of God in a way that perhaps we can trust. That God is still all-powerful, all-good, and all-in-control. I think there's no better example of this than we can look at Jesus himself. Who entered into the grievous suffering of the cross. Which didn't make sense to those around him by any means. It doesn't make sense to, to those of us today sometimes either. Why the cross? Why the grievous suffering of the cross? But we know that the cross and the suffering of that place was not without purpose. Because as he suffered and gave his life out of a deep love for all people, he paid the price that we could not. He took upon him the wrath of God that was due to us, but placed upon him. It was not without purpose in his suffering. But then it wasn't the end. He was raised. If he had, if he had just simply stayed dead, that would have been grief. But when he raised victorious upon the third day, having defeated sin, defeated death, and defeating the grave, the grief turned to good. You see, without Jesus, grief has the power to ruin us. It does. Without Jesus, it has the power to ruin us. But with Jesus, it gives us the power to walk with him, to be shaped by him, and to become identified in his victory that emerges on the other side of the grief. See, he is working in your life and he is calling you. He is pulling on that leash to draw you towards him for his good purposes, which are ultimately our glorification with him. Do you know him? Do you acknowledge your need for him? Have you received him? Because for all of those who consider themselves to be children of God, who have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, they can understand the good in grief. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that we can talk about tough things sometimes. That there's difficult situations that we all go through in some seasons. Lord, I know that there are some here who, who we may or may not know about all the situations, but we know that there are some here, Lord, who are struggling. And I pray for them in the midst of their grief, Lord, in the midst of their whatever word they may use there, the fear, the uncertainty, the, the challenges and trials. I pray, God, that they would not simply try to escape it, but try to navigate it with you, Lord, with you as their guide, with you as their comfort, with you as their support, knowing that you will walk through it with them and help them to emerge the other side victorious. The victorious as you define it, Lord. Help us to have your perspective of these things, Father, to fully understand the truth and goodness of your word and the promises that we find. Lord, if, those, if there are those here right now or those who are watching online who don't have that relationship with you, I just pray right now, Father, that, that they would feel the, 
the convicting, compelling pull of the Spirit to offer their lives to Jesus right now, to accept his gift of forgiveness for their sins, to simply pray with me, Jesus, thank you for paying the price for my sins, a price I cannot pay on my own. Thank you for being my hope. Thank you for being with me in these difficult times to make me aware of your goodness, your power, your truth. As you gave your life for me, I now give you mine that we may walk in new life together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.